So we've been talking, the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about Jesus' victory over sin. He drank the cup. I love the fact that he dies with bitter dripping from his lips as a symbol of drinking the cup. He finished the cup. But what is the ultimate evidence that Jesus conquered sin and can and will forgive my sins and reconcile me to God? What is the ultimate evidence that he conquered sin? which I can't see, but there's something I can see that confirms that victory. He conquered death. The resurrection of Christ proves that everything he said and everything he taught is his intention to bring to fruition. His resurrection proves he has every intention to save you. And you're the only person who can stop him from doing so. His resurrection from the dead proves everything that he's ever taught and everything he's ever said he wanted to do. If he rose from the dead, then he's going to save you. His victory over death is such a significant thing because not only did it mean you and I can overcome death and everyone I love can overcome death, but it sealed every promise he's ever given. If he rose from the dead, then he is the Messiah. He is the son of God. He did atone for your sins and he does intend to save you. So let's get to that victory. Now, Jacob in the Book of Mormon calls death and hell the awful monster. And the one uncertainty we have in this mortal existence is no one completely beats the awful monster. I love our wonderful medical practitioners who do everything they can to hide, to push back that monster. But eventually that monster will claim every single person you love. Eventually that awful monster will claim everyone you love. And no one beats the awful monster. But today, he's going to beat the awful monster. He is going to rise from the dead. So we left him. So he's, re- he's crucified around 9 a.m. That's when he's nailed to the cross, about 9 a.m. He hangs there from 9 to 12. And 12 is where he cries out, My God, my God, where ha- why hast thou forsaken me? And it appears that all the agonies of Gethsemane return because this is where he was completely abandoned by the Father. And that's when the storm rolls in and darkness reigns for three hours. They couldn't see him. They couldn't hear him for three hours. It was complete darkness from noon to about three causing one of the Roman guards to say, we ought to read this in Matthew chapter 27. Let's turn there. Causing one of the Roman guards who saw the storm and saw all that the storm meant. Matthew chapter 27. When he saw the storm, verse 54. Tell me what he said. A Roman soldier who knew nothing about religion. Truly, this was the Son of God. 
Now, turn to 1 Nephi chapter 9. What were the kings of the earth saying at the same time? While Jesus hung on the cross, turn to the Book of Mormon, 1 Nephi chapter 19. There it is, right? 1 Nephi chapter 19. Tell me what the kings of the earth were saying at the same time. Verse 12. Someone read it. Abbot, you on? 1 Nephi chapter 19, verse 12. Me. Yeah, Abby. And all these things must surely come, save the prophet Venus. And the rocks of the earth must rend. And because of the groanings of the earth, many of the kings of the isles of the sea shall be brought upon by the Spirit of God to explain the God of nature suffers. The earth was bearing her testimony, right? Now, when Jesus was born, what was the sign of his birth? When he came into the world, when Jesus came into the world, what was the sign? light when there was supposed to be darkness, right? That's an appropriate sign for Jesus coming into my life to come into the world. Light when there's supposed to be darkness, a day and night and a day with no darkness. What is the sign of him being killed? Darkness when there's supposed to be light. And what were all the kings of all the islands saying when they looked at what the earth was saying? The God of nature suffers. All of that ended around three, and he hung there, and then they had to quickly get the body. Now, it's, we don't know exactly when the Jews considered the Sabbath day. Some people considered the Sabbath day starting when the sun went down. So Friday night, when the sun goes down, the Sabbath starts. Some people thought it was sunrise on Saturday morning. Some people thought it was midnight. So to be sure, when do they cannot have a, a, a Jew on a cross on the Sabbath. So they've got to get that body off the cross before the sun goes down. And so they came to him thinking they'd have to break the bones. Now, anyone know why they had to break the bones? Breaking the bones facilitated the death of the person crucified because how do you die from crucifixion? You don't die from blood loss. You, you die from suffocation. In order to breathe, you have to stand up. And when you can no longer stand up, you just die of suffocation. And so they would make sure you died by doing what? Breaking your leg bones. So then you couldn't stand up and then you would suffocate. So when they come to break Jesus's bones to make sure he's dead, what do they discover? He's already dead. And that was fulfillment of prophecy because the Paschal lamb couldn't have what? Any broken bones. Jesus can't have a broken bone. And he wasn't. He was, they didn't break his bones because he was already dead. But the rush to pull him off the grave is going to torment a lot of people, right? Can you, do you feel for the pioneers that lost their children on the way and had to bury their children in shallow graves or even in the snow, knowing that probably the wolves are going to get to them? Would that haunt you as a mom? I can't tell you how much that would haunt me as a parent not properly burying a child. So what about Jesus? What about the savior of all mankind who was rushed into the tomb? Would that haunt you a little bit? And so all during the Sabbath, it appears to have haunted specifically the women that loved him. 
He was not properly buried. He was not properly prepared for burial. What we normally do to a dead body to make sure they're preserved as long as possible, he wasn't prepared. My brother died in the middle of winter. When we buried him, my mom covered him in the thickest blanket she could find. It's a dead body. But what was my mom thinking? Do you understand what my mom was thinking? And so she covered him as, with the thickest blanket she could find because we buried him in the middle of the winter. So can you understand the desire of the women to make it right? So crack of dawn, so when can they possibly touch him? Sabbath has to be over. And again, to make sure the Sabbath is over, that would be not midnight Sunday, it would be sun up. So I would imagine they were tormented all throughout the Sabbath. And the second the sun rose on, Monday, on Sunday morning, they were there with the tomb. They were there with the spices to prepare his body. Now, is it understandable that no one understood what he said when he said, I'm going to be resurrected? It's a little bit easier for us to understand because we know that there's been a resurrection. We've seen, at least as a people, we've seen resurrected bodies. But no one had ever seen a resurrected body. No one had ever been resurrected. So it's understandable that they just didn't get it, did they? They weren't coming to see his resurrected body. Why were they coming to the tomb? To prepare his body for burial. And when the tomb was empty, none of them went, oh, he's resurrected. Great. What was the assumption? They've stolen his body. They've stolen his body and they're mutilating it because they hated him. So let's turn to this tender scene of these women coming to the tomb to prepare his body for burial. John chapter 20, one of the greatest chapters of scripture. John chapter 20. Now, a little symbolism. Can we just do a little symbolism? Um, the, okay. I love symbols. You just got to know I love symbols. And Heavenly Father loves symbols. Heavenly Father uses symbols all the time. The temple is full of symbols. The gospel is full of symbols. Baptism is a symbol. Heavenly Father gave us the first of the symbols at the creation. How many days did it take to him, for him to finish his work? Seven days. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And he rested on the seventh day. But how many days did Heavenly Father take to complete and finish and perfect his work? Seven. So that he gave us the first symbol. Seven is the symbol of perfect or complete or whole. So think through the scriptures. How many times has the number seven been used? How many times did they have to walk around the city of Jericho? Seven times. And on the seventh day, they did seven loop, seven days, seven times. What was the point? This miracle will occur when you have done what? Taken your obedience to completion. 
When you have completely obeyed, then the miracle comes. There's the number seven, complete or whole. How many times does Naaman have to dip in the Jordan River? Seven times. How much leprosy falls after one dip? None. When does the leprosy fall? When he has done what? Completed his obedience. And so seven becomes a symbol of complete. So what day is Jesus resurrected? Sunday, the eighth day. What does eight become a symbol of? Renewal. Starting over. How many people were on the ark when God started over? Eight people. When do we get baptized? Eight. It's the symbol of starting over. And if the atonement is symbolized by a number, what number is it? Eight. Because he was re-raised. And I love that verse one, what does John point out? It was the first day of the week. What could we call that? The eighth day. He was resurrected on the eighth day. A day of renewal. A day of starting over. So, anyway, some kind of cool symbols. All right, first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene. Early when it was yet dark. Now, is her purpose to see a resurrected Jesus? No, her purpose is to prepare him for burial. She, when it was yet dark, we're in John chapter 20. Early when it was dark unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. So what's her assumption? They've taken him. So she runneth and told Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Who's the other disciple that Jesus loved? John, who's writing this. And saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. And they both ran together and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. So who got to the sepulcher first? John. And what does he do in verse 5? Stooping down and looking in, he saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Total cool moment here. Why does John not go in? Peter is the senior apostle. Have you ever watched the Quorum of the Twelve leave the tabernacle after, leave the conference center? How do they leave? In order. David Bednar will not leave the, ta- the conference center until everyone with higher authority is out of the room. So why does Peter, why does John not go in? Because Peter is the senior apostle. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. And then went in that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher and saw and believed. Tell me what he saw. Why did John believe at this moment? He was stolen 
I doubt they would have folded. So most likely, the linen clothes that he was wearing were folded, which would suggest that Jesus got up and did what? Took them off and folded them. Those of you who've been to the temple, I don't know about you, but what's the first thing you do when you come back from the celestial room? What do you do? You take off that robe and gently fold. I think of Jesus every single time I fold that robe, rising up in the resurrection, taking off his linen clothes that were covering him, right? He would have been wrapped in them and there was a napkin about his head. And what does he do to the napkin? He folds it, respectfully leaving them there. John came in and that was enough. That was enough. John knew. He wasn't stolen. He rose. And this is his evidence. But he's gone. John seems to know that he, was, he rose from the dead. No one else seems to believe that. So Peter and John leave. Now verse 10, then the disciples went away again to their own house. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher and seeth two angels in white, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Now, I would be freaking out if an angel were all of a sudden in the tomb, but I'm guessing maybe that was not so uncommon in the days of Christ. And they say, woman, why weepest thou? She said, because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she said this, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. And then she heard one word, the most magical word. You know, when I get a Yerman Thummim and I can go back in time and see anything, this is exactly where I want to hear that word. She is weeping. She is devastated. The whole world has ended. Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where thou hast borne him. And then Jesus said, I can't even say, I don't even know how he said it. I just wish I could say it the way that it had the power. He simply said, Mary. And this time, did she know? Did she know who it was? Now, look at this next phrase. With, with that emotion in her heart, she does what? Do you see the symbolism here? She turned herself from what? What was she facing? An empty tomb, a grave. She turned and saw him. That turning is so symbolic. The resurrection of Christ is about turning from pain to joy, death to life. 
Now I'm going to do something and I'm going to apologize in advance for it and I'm going to shut the door because I need that not to be the sacred sound of basketballs, right? You know it's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints if you hear basketballs. I'm going to do something and I'm going to apologize and I'm going to tell you I'm going to do it so maybe you'll forgive me for doing it. I so desperately want you to feel the power of the resurrection. Now, one of my biggest pet peeves is when people try and manipulate my emotions. The spiritual part of us and the emotional part of us are so closely tied that some people want to give you a cheated experience and they make you cry or they make you feel emotional so that you think you're having a spiritual experience. And when people are manipulating my emotions, I feel betrayed. But I'm going to manipulate your emotions. <laughs> and I hope you'll understand that my intention is not to fool you into things. I'm not unprepared. I'm not trying to make up for lack of preparation and make you think it was spiritual when it really wasn't. I just want you to feel something. And I don't think it's going to be manipulated and I don't think it's going to be fake. But I am going to do that. I have told you one story. I'm going to tell you two more. The first story I'm going to tell you is 100% true. The second story I'm going to tell you is not yet. It's a picture I have. Allow me simply to paint a picture. I need to say that because I will freak you out if you, don't, if you think the second story has already happened. It hasn't. It's a picture I have in my mind, okay? I love that moment where Jesus comes behind her and says, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? Sir, if, you have take, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him and I will carry him away. And then he said that one word. Mary. And everything changed. Everything changed. She turned from death to life, from darkness to light, despair to hope. And if you can understand anything about the resurrection, you need to understand that turning in all of our lives. Story number one. Um, I was a sophomore in high school. It's 1985. No, none of you were alive, right? Tell me none of you. No, none of you are even close to my age. It's 1985. I was a sophomore in high school. I've made the basketball team, um, and we're practicing, and it's after school, and we're in the gym. We're in the locker room. And my neighbor bursts into the locker room, which was really weird because he didn't have any kids on the team. But he's pale as a ghost. Something's wrong. And we all knew it. He asked to speak to the coach out in the hall. And you have that moment of dread where everyone's like, please don't be me, please don't be me, please don't be me. Coach walked back in, pale as a ghost. Now we know something's wrong and it's something in one of our lives. And he pointed to me and said, Bryce, you need to go talk to him. I was the one. So I went out and my neighbor said, you need to go home. Something's happened at your home. You need to get home as quickly as you can. 
So I just, I went, practice, I'm in my practice jersey, I grabbed my keys and I ran home. And as I pulled into my circle, there was an ambulance and a police car at my, at my house and I knew something major was wrong. So I ran in and the house was full of neighbors and all of a sudden Bryce is home, Bryce is home, Bryce is home. And out came my dad and uh, pulled me outside and said, your brother is dead. My parents never faced the reality, but my brother ended his life. They always thought it was an accident, but it was pretty clear to me that my brother ended his life. I think he had an undiagnosed case of severe teenage depression. And as I have recognized that very, those very symptoms in my own children and caught it in time, I think I know why he killed himself. He hung himself in the basement. My older sister had come home from college uh, it was the day before Thanksgiving. My older sister was home, went out shopping with my mom. My younger sister, my, my, myself and my younger sister went to school and my, and, and my brother, Matthew, stayed home to watch the two little ones that weren't in school. And that's when he, he killed himself. So my younger sister coming home from school was the first person to find him, cut him down called my dad. My dad rushed home. I was third. Do you see where I'm going? Which means I was home when my mom got home. We didn't have cell phones. I was there when my mom found out that her son was dead. I'll never forget that. 16-year-old boys do not like to see their mom in pain. I will never forget that. That has traumatized me. Watching my mom find out that her son was dead. She had to be taken from the house when they brought the body upstairs. The next day was the Thanksgiving. And then Friday, we went to see him in the, in the mortuary, and I will never forget my mom, biggest alligator tears I've ever seen anyone cry, holding his hand and just weeping. Um, over the years, she tried to stay connected. So as his friends went on missions, when they all turned mission age and went on missions, my mom bought them all a tie kind of in hopes that her son was kind of going on a mission. When they got married, she went to all of the receptions and celebrated their lives as if she could celebrate, you know, her son. Um, it's, been, it's been many, many painful years for my mom. So here's story number two. My brother's buried in the Larkin Cemetery out in Sandy, beautiful cemetery. I've been there more times than I can count. My dad's now buried there. My grandparents are buried there. 
So let me paint a picture for you. One day my mom shows up to the Larkin Cemetery just to pay her respects. And as she pulls in, out of the corner of her eye, she notices some vandalism. Now that's the one place you don't ever want to see vandalism. And as she gets closer, she realizes that it looks like vandals have been digging up caskets. And that sinking all, you know, it's like, are you kidding me? After all that I've been through, I now have to deal with this? So she rushes to where my brother's buried. Now you can't see it from the robe, it's kind of a hill. So she gets out of the car, she runs up to the hill, and just as she gets to the top of the hill, she sees the one thing she vowed she'd never wanted to see again. That blue casket. Someone dug up my brother's casket and it's busted open. And all the pain of all the loss and all the years, my mom just is overwhelmed and she just collapses and weeps. And she relives all the memories. But still, she can't, she's got to find that body. If, is the body there? Did they take the body? And so she creeps, she crawls over and she finally looks in and she peeks in and not only did they bust it open, but someone has taken the body. And she just ugly cries and weeps in pain. And while she's sitting there weeping, this man approaches from behind and says, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? And my mom says, do you know who took my son? Do you know where he went? Do you know who took him? Could you tell me? And I will carry him back. This is my boy. This is my son. And then my mom hears one word. Mom! And she turns. She turns from an empty casket to a living, breathing, happy, smiling son. Now, can you imagine what she would feel in that moment? Could you feel an inkling of what she would feel and what Mary must have felt? That is resurrection. That is resurrection. And because he was, everyone you love will be. Somehow, some way, in some form, you will have that moment with everyone you have ever lost. Because Mary turned, we will all turn from an empty, dark tomb to a living being, from death to life. And that's what this moment is all about. Now you can forgive me, but I wanted you to feel that 
Kern. Thoughts? Comments? Do you see why we celebrate Easter? The awful monster. He conquered the awful monster. Now, as a tribute to women everywhere, who did he choose as the first witness of his resurrection? Who did Jesus choose? Now, he will visit Peter second. Paul's going to make it very clear that he's going to go to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He's going to do the chief apostle first. Peter should be one of the first witnesses of the resurrection, right? But who was the first? Now, if you want to know the role of women in the life of the Savior, I think that moment is one of the most definitive. He chose as a witness of his resurrection. The first witness was a woman. And if we read the scriptures carefully, probably the other women that came with her were next. But I love that. I love the fact that Jesus appeared to Mary first. Now, he's going to appeal to the court. So let me turn to, how many have you turned to 1 Corinthians? Now, I don't know. I don't know if we're going to get to Corinthians by the time we get, we're done with this class. I think we might be in Corinthians. But let's go to Corinthians chapter 15. How do you prove? Not that in the spiritual realm, we don't really talk about proof. But how do you establish the reality of the resurrection? How do you definitively say, I know that the promises of my sins being overcome are legitimate because he rose from the dead. I have physical evidence that he rose from the dead. So how do you prove that Jesus was raised from the dead? And I don't mean to be disrespectful, but if Jesus rose from the dead, then what does that say about Christianity? If Jesus rose from the dead, then he is the son of God. And there is no other God but Jesus and his father. Right? So how do you establish the reality of his resurrection? The answer is witnesses. So let's rank the witnesses. Now we've already seen Mary, right? Mary was the first witness. Who's the second? So everyone turn to 1 Corinthians. In speaking about the value of the power of the resurrection, Paul's going to lay out the witnesses. So who was next? Verse 5. Cephas, which is Peter. So who should be the next witness of the resurrection? Who should see Jesus, a living person, before anyone else? The president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Doesn't that make sense? So Cephas sees him. And then the Twelve. The Quorum of the Twelve saw him and established the reality of his resurrection. Now this is where we talk about Thomas, right? Thomas wasn't there the first time comes back and says, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. A week later, Thomas is there, and what does Jesus say? Touch, feel. And Thomas says, now I believe. And Jesus says, blessed are those like this class who didn't have to touch and still believe. But Thomas became a witness of the resurrection. 
And then after that, what does Jesus do? Who, is he, who does he show himself to? 500. There were 500 living, breathing human beings who said, I've seen him. I know it's him. I've touched a resurrected body. I have felt the nail marks in his hands. So he's racking up his witnesses, right? And then, verse 7, he was seen of James and all of the apostles. And last of all, verse 8, he was seen of me. Paul says, I've seen him. I have seen a resurrected Jesus. Now, that's a pretty compelling list of witnesses, right? That's a pretty compelling list of people who could testify. I saw him. We all saw him die. And I saw him after that, alive. Now, who does he add to that list? Turn to 3 Nephi chapter 17, last verse. How many people were gathered in Bountiful when he came? 3 Nephi 17, last verse of 3 Nephi 17. How many people became eyewitnesses of a resurrected Christ? About how many? 2,500. Now go back to chapter 11. Tell me what every single one of them had done. Go back to chapter 11. There's 2,500 people here. Let's go to verse 15. It came to pass that the multitude went forth and thrust their hands into his side and did fill the prints of the nails in his hands and in his feet. And this they did do, going forth one by one, one by one, until they all had gone forth. How many were there? 2,500 went one by one. Now, do you think it was a risk? You know how they always film it. They always film Jesus walking down the steps and people are just reaching out for his hands. I don't think that's how it was, right? I think each one of them had a significant time. And he now has 2,500 people that witnessed his resurrection. Um, I think that speaks to how uh, much the worth of souls is. One by one. He did that for every single person, even though he had already done it to the apostles, which I think in a worldly, worldly view you'd see as the most important because yep. they were carrying out his work. That's really all he had to visit himself to, but he visited, he visited all of his people because he loved them. And also to doubting Thomas, like he could have easily said, no, you doubted me. Yeah, you don't get to. Yeah, why should I appear to you? But it's how God goes back for the... The one sheep that was lost, the one person that doubted him, even though he did doubt him, he still went back. So we see his character as he's established. You see what he's doing now? He's showing his character, but he's also ranking up, racking up the number of witnesses who can testify that he was alive after his death. How many does he have now? Thousands. The 500 in Jerusalem plus the 2,500 in America, he's at least got 3,000. Let's add to that. This dispensation began when a 14-year-old became a witness of the resurrection. Joseph Smith 
will testify. Last of all, of all the testimonies that have been given, we're going to give ours, last of all. And Joseph simply says, here's my testimony. Three words, that he lives. For we saw him. Now, what fascinates me, turn to Acts chapter 1, when they replaced Judas Iscariot. When they replaced Judas Iscariot as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, what was their criteria? So, First Corinthians, or sorry, New Testament, Acts chapter 1, what was their criteria for picking a new apostle? He had to be, look at verse 22. Acts chapter 1, verse 22, he had to be what? We're only going to pick an apostle if he's a witness of the resurrection. And so they chose an apostle who was a witness of the resurrection. Now, I don't know that I can speak for all of them, and I don't know that I can speak for any of them. But all my life, I have watched for the moments where modern apostles claim that. And it is fascinating to me how often it happens. Can I show you a few? Now pull out your gospel. I want you to see these in print because there is great power in what I'm about to do. I need you to find the, go to your magazine. So go to church magazines and find the pre you know the old the the before the leahona you need to find the april 1991 enzyme april 1991 it's called jesus christ our savior and god by ezra Taft benson president of the church april you got it taylor mm-hmm. so not hard to find right so april 91 enzyme the first presidency message is ezra Taft benson Jesus Christ, our Savior and God. Anyone having a hard time finding it? Okay, go to the very end. Do you see that poem he quotes at the very end, the hymn? Okay, two paragraphs before he quotes that hymn. Everyone there? So April Enzyme, 1991. Two paragraphs before he quotes the hymn. Anyone not find it? Okay. Ezra Taft Benson said, because he was God, even the Son of God, he alone had the power of resurrection. And on the third day following his burial, he came forth from the tomb alive and showed himself to many. There were witnesses then who saw him there have been many in this dispensation who have seen him as one of those special witnesses so called in this day i testify to you that he lives he lives with a resurrected body there is no truth or fact of which i am more assured or more confident than the truth of the literal resurrection of the Lord. Did you hear it? Did you hear what Ezra Taft Benson was saying? 
as one of those special witnesses. Now I got a dozen of them. Uh, we won't take a lot of time. I want to show you one of, for me, for me, one of the most significant. I need you to find conference, go to conference talks, find Boyd K. Packer, and find his April 1971 talk. So a couple ways. You can go to the April 1971 conference and then find Boyd K. Packer, or you can search by speaker, find President Packer, and then find his April of 71. You all know how to do that, right? Okay, let me share this one with you. Let's read this one together. I think this one typifies, I can't say all of them. I have no authority to say, but I think this one is significant. Okay, let me see if I can turn it this way. There we go. Boyd K. Packer. I'm going to skip around, but I will scroll slowly so you can follow where I'm skipping. First paragraph. It was one year ago today in a solemn assembly that we had the privilege of raising our hands to sustain the authorities of the church, much as we have done this morning. It was on that more April morning that I heard my name read as one presented for your sustaining vote as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Um... Let's jump down to occasionally. So he's been an apostle for one year. Occasionally during the past year, I have been asked a question. Usually it comes as a curious, almost an idle question about the qualifications to stand as a witness for Christ. The question they ask is, have you seen him? That is a question I have never asked of another. I have not asked that question of my brethren of the quorum, thinking it would be so sacred and so personal that one would have to have some special inspiration, indeed some authorization, even to ask it. There are some things just too sacred to discuss. We know that as it relates to the temple. In our temple, sacred ordinances are performed, sacred experiences are enjoyed, yet we do not, because of the nature of them, discuss them outside those sacred walls. It is not that they are secret, but they are sacred. To be discussed, not to be discussed, but to be harbored and to be protected and regarded with the deepest reverence. Now skip a few paragraphs. There are those who hear testimonies born in the church by those in high station and by members of the wards and branches, all using the same words. Quote, I know that God lives. I know that Jesus is the Christ. And come to question, why can it not be said in plainer words? Why aren't they more explicit and more descriptive? <coughs> Cannot the apostles say more? How like the sacred experience in the temple becomes our personal testimony. It is sacred. And when we are wont to put it into words, we say it the same way, using all the same words. The apostles declare it in the same phrases with the little primary or Sunday school youngsters. Quote, I know that God lives. I know that Jesus is the Christ. Now, skip down to, I said there was a question. I said there was a question that could not be taken lightly nor answered at all without the promptings of the Spirit. I have not asked that question of others. 
but I have heard them answer it. But not when they were asked. They have answered it under the promptings of the Spirit on sacred occasions when the Spirit beareth record. I have heard one of my brethren declare, I know from experiences too sacred to relate, that Jesus is the Christ. I have heard another testimony, a testify, I know that Jesus lives. I know that the Lord lives. And more than that, I know the Lord. It was not their words that held the meaning or the power. It was the Spirit. Now, do you see what he's danced around, but he hasn't really addressed? Now, let's listen with spiritual ears. Second to last paragraph. Now, I wonder with you why such, why one such as I should be called to the holy apostleship. There are so many qualifications that I lack. There is so much in my effort to serve that is wanting. As I have pondered it, I have come to only one single thing, one qualification in which there may be cause. That is, I have that witness. I declare to you that I know that Jesus is the Christ. I know that He lives. He was born in the meridian of time. He taught his gospel. He was tried, was crucified. He rose on the third day. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. He has a body of flesh and bones. Of this, I bear testimony. Of him, I am a witness. Did you hear it? We are led by eyewitnesses, witnesses of his resurrection. Let's do one more. Let's do our current president of the church. He said it so quietly and so humbly that I think most people missed it. When he said it, I was shaken to my very core. Um, Enzyme, April 20, 2018. Let's find the article. As we go forth together. Enzyme, April 2018. So let's find that. Let's read it in. Okay, so library, magazines, Enzyme. 2018, April, as we go forth. This was the press conference announcing his presidency. At the very end, he said, I declare my devotion to God our eternal Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And then he said three words. I know them. Now if I read that, I know them. 
Yes, I believe that means exactly what he's saying. I know them. I love them and pledge to serve them and you with every remaining breath of my life. I think when we speak of resurrection, we need to understand the doctrine. And then we need to understand that what establishes the power and the reality of the resurrection are witnesses. And you live in a day where you have living witnesses that Jesus is alive, that he rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, then everything he promised, he will do. If he rose from the dead, then he promised to save you. Their testimony that he's alive means he intends to save you. Not them, you. Of that I testify. I am a little W witness of his resurrection. I know spiritually and I have a conviction in my soul and someday I will know. I remember vividly one of my favorite apostles who was struggling with cancer. He died nine days after he said this. He stood up in general conference and said, I am one of his witnesses. And in the coming day, I shall feel the nail marks in his hands and in his feet and shall wet his feet with my tears. And then he said, but I shall not know better then than I know now that he is God's almighty son. I testify of a resurrection and of witnesses of the resurrection. What a glorious time to be alive. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.